In Leviticus 25, as we began to see in our last study together, is basically a chapter that God gives some instruction now regarding the stewardship of the land of Israel specifically and how they were to manage the land which God said was his. And we saw in really the first part of the chapter that we kind of were able to sneak into there together, the first few verses down to around verse 7 or so, that one of the things that God gave as an instruction to them was that they were to honor what was called the sabbatic year. That is, uh, they would work the land there, they would farm it, they would sow it, they would reap and harvest the land for six years, but then every seventh year they were to just let the land rest uh, and God had assured that he would provide for them and the land was to just have a time of rest whereby it might sort of uh, sort of replenish itself and we might call it a soil conservation process but basically God had given to them this instruction certainly a part of it was to teach them lessons of faith as well as just to learn to respect really the stewardship that God had given to them that it was his land we uh, made note of there in verse 23 where God clearly told them the land is mine again it didn't belong to them God gave it to them and because everything in essence belongs to the Lord everything really that we have and utilizing in this life it's all a stewardship from the Lord and so God gave to them this instruction that they were to honor to let the land rest every seven years really it was a scheduled holiday they could have an entire year off God it was a paid holiday God promised to provide for them abundantly during that time and until the next harvest would come in once they started sowing and tending the land once again as typical and now as we come to verse 8 uh, God here gives another instruction uh, he says here in chapter 25 verse 8 and you shall also count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself seven times seven years so now he's referring to here is basically a time span as we see of 49 years and the time of the seven sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years and then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee it's a term there from the Hebrew where they get the term the shofar. If you've ever seen that uh, ram's horn, the shofar horn uh, that uh, is uh, common with the land of Israel, that's the term there, the term jubilee. Uh, and he says, you are to blow the trumpet to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. Now, just a little sidelight here. Do you see that phrase there, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants? Uh, if you were to underline that, does anybody know, especially for you history buffs, uh, where that phrase is inscribed uh, here in the United States of America? Anybody know? This is your one opportunity to talk in church out loud without interrupting the service. Anybody know? No, not the United Nations. Where? Not the capital. Look what the term actually... What's that? Liberty Bell. Ding, ding, ding. All right, give that man a mint on the way out. Free cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, that's inscribed on the Liberty Bell right there, verse 10. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It's actually inscribed on the Liberty Bell there uh, in Philadelphia. So uh, just a little interesting sidelight goes to show you once again, those who are framing our laws, our constitution, the early days of our government, what was their reference point? The Bible. 
in a lot of ways they were looking to the word of God as they were putting together the framework for the laws and the government uh, of the American society. And, and here, even interestingly enough, out of the book of Leviticus, you think of all places they <laughs> wouldn't be looking. Most people don't by preference go and study the book of Leviticus. I mean, we probably uh, as a church are doing something very unique even in that we are studying the book of Leviticus because it's one of those type of books that a lot of Christians probably aren't very familiar with, don't have an interest in studying and reading through, but just because we systematically study uh, the entirety of scripture and in some ways we find ourselves doing something something unique probably to a lot of Christians, but interesting that shows you they were familiar with Old Testament scriptures and the Bible and were using the principles of God's word to uh, sort of create that Judeo-Christian ethic and the framing of the government uh, that we've put together in our own nation here. So here God tells them on this 50th year, verse 10, they were to proclaim liberty or release, the idea is, throughout all the land to all its inhabitants, it shall be a jubilee for you, God says, and each of you, here's what was to happen. They were to return to their own possession and each of you shall return to his family. That 50th year, verse 11, shall be a jubilee to you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is the jubilee, it shall be holy to you and you shall eat its produce from the field and in this year of jubilee you shall return each to his possession so uh, they were every seven years to let the land rest that was the sabbatic year and then every seventh sabbatic year after 49 years so every 49 years at the end of that sabbath year in the 49th year the 50th year then began what was called the year of Jubilee. So basically what happened once a century every 50 years, it was something that was put into place. So really every person who lived an average lifespan in Israel uh, at some point in time more than likely would experience one year of Jubilee in their lifetime. And it was a basic time that marked the experience and celebration of release, as you can see, from all debts and obligations. It was a time that they were permitted to return back and take possession of their land if they had to sell their land off. We'll see more about that in the verses ahead. If you fell into a financial bind and you needed to do something to make an arrangement to still provide for your family and Maybe you had a few bad years of crops and so you needed to sell off a portion of your land to someone else. Uh, that was something that you could do to be able to sustain yourself or to hire yourself out as a laborer. But when these things, whether it was uh, land mortgages or financial debts or personal obligations, if you had to sell yourself in a sense to become uh, a slave, to serve a master, to make resources for your household. On this year of Jubilee, all of those debts were canceled, all the obligations were removed it was a time of liberty whereby the people everything would revert back to the original owners and really it was a great time of of celebrating just relief and restoration God mentions multiple times here that you would return to your own possession remember when they come into the land in Joshua, we'll see God gives them each an allotment according to the tribes they would get an allotment of land possession and God wanted that land to be, in a sense, you know, fairly and adequately spread among the congregation of Israel. And this year of Jubilee, in some ways, it also protected uh, against someone coming in and, in a sense, uh, you know, just buying up all the land and, and sort of 
possessing everything and monopolizing all the lands and preying upon the misfortune of people. Uh, and it was a way for them to have a sense of a relief from their debts and obligations, at least at one point, and they could return back to their land and to their family. So it was, it was a time when God uh, orchestrated that at least once in your lifespan, this wouldn't be a bad thing to experience, would it? Imagine, you know, all of a sudden, you know, that year of Jubilee hits in the 50th year and, you know, any, any visa card debt canceled, you know, house mortgages canceled. Now, the hard part is most mortgages are 30 years. So for some people that would do absolutely no, you know, nothing. You'd probably pay it off in the 49th and the 50th. That's eh, year of Jubilee. And, and, and that'd be really frustrating. But this was just a way that God orchestrated to give mercy to the people, to help out so that they didn't oppress and take advantage of one another. And it was a time of tremendous celebration, this accepted jubilee year that God had put into place. And notice the significance of when it would happen as well. You see there not only every 50th year, but he also says, verse 9, that they were to blow the trumpet so the shofar would sound and it was to be blown on the 10th day of the seventh month and it actually was in conjunction with the Day of Atonement. Now remember, the Day of Atonement was that one day on the calendar year when the high priest would go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies with the blood of an innocent sacrifice and would basically make atonement for the sins nationally of the people of Israel. It was a day of reflection when they were to basically be in repentance. The Bible says they were to afflict their souls. So it was a day that was synonymous with their repentance and remorse over their sin and the forgiveness that was being supplied for them through the work of another on their behalf. And, and this was put notice significantly together with the blowing of the shofar horn when the jubilee came to pass they were to do it specifically on the day of atonement when it happened on that 50th year and i think it's significant because notice it's connected to a time of forgiveness and a time of repentance and i think in this god really wanted there to be a picture that uh, when there is removal of sin and there is forgiveness and when there's repentance the result of that is an experience and a celebration of release and liberty. There's a sense of relief that, oh, man, my debt has been removed. The obligation that was hanging over my head has been taken away from me. And, and I'm, I'm going to experience restoration in the same way spiritually. That's exactly what, what happens to us. And so I think there's a purposeful thing that God here was portraying a picture tying these two together in the same way they experienced relief and restoration from their debts and obligations spiritually uh, when we experience the forgiveness of God and repentance of sin that's what we experience in our lives it's in those times there's a tremendous joy and celebration of my debt has been removed and I'm relieved of you know the punishment that was hanging over my head in that same way we experience that in Jesus Christ, in a sense, our own personal jubilee in that capacity. Now, the other thing that's interesting is keep in mind, this basically, because it landed after a Sabbath year, after the 49th year, it also really became then sort of a, a, a two-year span where they would not tend the land. So they would have a Sabbath year's rest, and then they would have the 50th year. It would be a second year. So it was kind of like a back-to-back -back, uh, two-year Sabbath year as they experienced this, and verse 13 says, in that year, each person would then return to their possession. Now, in connection to that, God gives some instructions, verse 14. He says, and if you sell anything to your neighbor 
or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. So again, God wanted them to treat each other ethically and fairly. He didn't want them taking advantage of each other in their misfortune. And he says, verse 15, according notice to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor and according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price, that is the price of the land, if you were purchasing the land, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price, for he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So in relation to the land for a season of time transferring hands, as it would, and again, keep in mind, the land was technically never sold. God said the land is mine. Really, the children of Israel, they were just leasing the land. They were being afforded the opportunity to manage the land and to work the land to provide for themselves. But if you came into a bind, again, let's say you were you know, producing an olive crop for a season of time and, and at, you have three, four bad years in a row and you're thinking, man, we're really in trouble. We need to do something. And so you decide to sell off a portion of your land. These verses here tell us the way that they were to then equate the value of the land was in relation to the year of Jubilee. So what he's describing here is according to the multitude of the years that would be left until the Jubilee would come around again, that was how you were to price the land and its value when you made a purchase or sales transaction. So you know, if it was, for example, year 47 and you knew the Jubilee was right around the corner, well, if that were the case, the land value would be a lot less because you knew, hey, well, within about a two-year span, uh, this guy's going to get all the land right back, so I don't want to pay a high price, uh, and it wouldn't be fair for me to, to sell the land for a high price to you, knowing that basically within about a two-year span on Jubilee, I'm just going to get all the land back, and it comes back into my possession. Now, if it was only year three after the most recent Jubilee year, and you realize, well, wait a minute, there's maybe a good 46 plus years or so here that this land can be worked and crops can be produced. That's how you were to equate according to the number of years of crops. And in that case, then if there were you know, upwards to four plus decades, the land could be worked and profit could be made, then the price of the land, it was valued a lot higher. And again, here you see God just giving sound wisdom of how they were to handle these business transactions in a way that were fair and equitable. And here's what's unique. You notice that the closer to the time of the Jubilee year, the material value of the land decreased. And I can't help but as I look at that to think of how in some ways as we think about the return of Christ and the coming kingdom and in a sense you want to think about potentially Jesus ushering in a year of Jubilee when he returns and everything is made right again and there's restoration on the earth and how in a sense if you look to that, how isn't it true in the same way that the closer you get to the return of the Lord material things, their value should begin to decrease. In the same way, the closer they got to Jubilee, the material value decreased and didn't matter as much. That should be our heart attitude. As we get closer to the return of the Lord and realize that the coming of our King and the restoration of all things is on the horizon, material, ling material things should be worth less to us. 
We should equate things with a different value system because we realize what year that coming crowning year of Christ on the horizon is right there. Now, verses 18 down through verse 23, we actually discussed last time, if you remember when you're here with us, in relation to the sabbatic year. So I don't want to reiterate for sake of time what's there. We, we discussed them. Basically, God is giving instruction how, despite the refraining from working of the land, that he would still adequately provide and, and give a bumper crop in many ways to take care of their need if they were concerned about not working the land. Verse 23, he reminds them again, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine, God said, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land, verse 24, of your possession, you shall grant redemption. Now, again, the word redemption literally means to buy back at a price. So what God is saying is, listen, the land is never to be sold permanently because it would always revert back in the year of Jubilee. And God also is telling them that what this meant was that there was always the opportunity as well, even in between the Jubilee year that would ultimately come, where if someone had the purchase price and they were able to pay the correct amount to acquire the land back, to buy it back, that they always needed to be willing to allow that to happen. In all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption to buy back at a price, the land that was sold. And if one of your brethren, verse 25, becomes poor and has sold some of his possessions, some of his land, the idea is... And if his redeeming relative, what the Hebrew often refers to here as a goel, uh, a kinsman redeemer is where we get the idea from, a redeeming relative, a close blood relative, comes looking to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother has sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, so if he catches up and has the financial means then to buy back or redeem back his land, then let him count the years again since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to restore it to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it. Notice until the year of Jubilee and then it shall be released and he shall then return to his possession. So God puts this provision in whereby they could redeem back the land. If they could afford to do it themselves, that was great. That was an opportunity. But more often than the case is if you fell into poverty in some way, there's no way you could afford to redeem back the land for yourself. Your greatest hope if you became poorer and had to sell yourself as a slave, which we'll see in the verses ahead, or sell a part of your land that was once yours that you had to forfeit and give up, was the hope that you had a close blood relative, a goel, a kinsman redeemer, someone who was a relative, a blood relative, who could come along and had the means and the resources that they could then buy back the land for you on your behalf. And they would pay the purchase price or the redemption price to then restore back to you the land that you lost and forfeited. Now, we see this law here in provision 
perfectly illustrated in the book of Ruth. If you remember, that's what Boaz does. Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer. It's a little four-chapter book, a few uh, books further along in the Old Testament, and it's beautifully illustrated how Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer for Ruth and for her family. You see the same thing illustrated in Jeremiah chapter 32, where there again the same law is enacted, and you can see it kind of carried out if you read Jeremiah chapter 32. But most beautifully, of course, this pictures for us what Jesus ultimately becomes for every one of us spiritually. Jesus becomes our kinsman redeemer. Jesus comes and he could not die for our sins and make a redemption for us as God. He needed to come and do that as man. He needed to be in a body of flesh and be a kinsman redeemer, a blood relative justly and righteously for one reason and also so that he could correctly fulfill the the prerogatives of the law so he could adequately redeem back for us what was lost in fact here even as it pertains really to the land in one sense jesus has been our redeemer certainly for our sin and our soul but he also has done it in a sense in relation to the earth itself because if you remember in the book of genesis God creates the heavens and the earth and he entrusts stewardship of the earth to Adam. He tells Adam uh, as the man he created to rule over and have dominion over the earth. And when Adam chooses to disobey God and to obey Satan, in essence what happens judicially is Adam forfeits the title deed to the earth and the calling and stewardship to rule over and have dominion over the earth as God's creation, he forfeits that over to Satan. And Jesus coming back in the fullness of all he accomplished in his redemption, in a sense, paid the redemption price. And that's why when you read Revelation chapter 5, there John sees someone who looked like a lamb bearing the marks of slaughter, who it says has this scroll this title deed in his hand and it's a picture of Jesus Christ the only one who is worthy to take back in a sense Jesus purchased back everything that we lost and forfeited in the garden of Eden even the very earth itself he redeemed it all back in his process of redemption and therefore will come day and one day adequately take possession of what rightfully belongs to him and that full work of restoration he's accomplished for us so here God makes this provision where a kinsman redeemer could come along and purchase back the land for you a close blood relative verse 29 he mentions another provision within the law if a man sells a house in a walled city so there were walled cities around uh, many of the uh, cities in that day and people would live we actually see within the walls remember in the book of joshua uh, there you have uh, Rahab the, the prostitute and, and she and her family there are living actually it seems in the wall of the city itself so sometimes there were actually apartments or ancient condos I don't know what you would consider them to be where you could actually live in the city wall itself it was probably a little more upper echelon upper class if you actually had a property in the city wall itself rather than out among the fields. And if a man were to sell his house in a walled city, verse 29, he could redeem it within a whole year after it was sold. He had a one calendar year time frame to redeem it if he wanted it back. He could purchase it back. Within a full year, he may redeem it. But if it's not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall then belong permanently to him who bought it throughout his generations, and it shall not be released 
in the Jubilee. So here's an exception. Again, what's this for? I have no idea. It's just an exception God made. They, they honored it in that day. I don't know what the significance of it was other than it was an exception where you had one year to buy back your uh, condo there in the city wall. If you didn't within a year, uh, that was something that did not revert back because maybe perhaps it wasn't tied to the land. It couldn't be worked and it wasn't a source of profit as land would be where they would produce crops and harvest them to provide for their households. Verse 31, however, notice houses of the villages that actually sat out among the land that was allotted which have no wall around them they shall be counted just like the fields of the country just like the land and they may be redeemed and they also shall be released back in the jubilee verse 32 nevertheless the cities of the levites now this was remember the tribe that god designated to care for the the ministry and the work of god among the tabernacle and the, also the tribe that produced the priests themselves they were given cities, remember the Levites, they did not get an inheritance and land like the rest of the people because they were set apart for the work of God. So when God distributed land to the other tribes, remember the tribe of Levi, they didn't get a portion of land to work and to maintain because their work was to maintain the house of God and to perform the ministry of God on behalf of his people. So they just received small cities and because of that, and they did not have land to work, God here puts a provision in very beautifully to protect his servants so that they did not end up being left without. It says the cities of the Levites and the houses in the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. So they had a special provision made by God for them to care for them. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the Jubilee for the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel, but the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold for it is their perpetual possession. So in other words, God's making a provision there for them uh, just to make sure that his servants would be sustained and so that they could stay engaged in the work of God and not be, in a sense, you know, distracted and concerned with how their provision would come. God made sure uh, in unique ways that they were cared for. Verse 35, again, we read, if one of your brethren, again, becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him. So again, mercy for the poor, uh, like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Again, God says, take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. And you shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. Again, the reason, God says, because I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So again, using the preface of the fact that God says, look, I'm the one who drew you out of bondage and misery and slavery yourself. God said you would still be struggling. You would still be in the midst of your own impoverishment and suffering and hardship if I didn't set you free from that. Again, the Bible says, you know, freely you receive, freely give. So God says, look, I've set you free from suffering and impoverishment and from difficulty in your conditions. And he says, and I'm the one who gave you the land. So he says, if someone among your brethren, amongst the congregation of Israel, falls into poverty, God says, you know, be compassionate towards them. 
help them, God says. And, and of all things, he emphasizes verse 36 and 37, by no means that God ever wants someone in a difficult predicament to become vulnerable to be taken advantage of. And tragically, unfortunately, that happens all the time because of humanity's heart where somebody is in a tough position and here they, in a sense, need some help, they need some money loaned to them. Look, God actually has to say, look, don't lend money for user. In other words, God's saying, don't charge interest. And then he even goes on to say, verse 37, don't lend him your food at a profit. Hey, I'll lend you some food. How do you lend somebody food? I mean, that's pretty tragic there. I'll tell you, I'm going to lend you some food temporarily, but uh, you know, I expect interest back on this or... But again, what's God doing? He's protecting from the, the, the wickedness of our human hearts where we actually try and capitalize on someone else's misfortune. Now, I'm sure you've never seen that happen in the United States of America, right? Where businesses or banks or people who extend loans or, or even individuals where they would actually capitalize on somebody's misfortune. And so, okay, we'll help you out, but the primary purpose in us helping you out is ultimately we're looking to capitalize on your misfortune to really help ourselves out, to somehow benefit off of your struggle and your suffering. And here God strictly forbids that, that they would be reverent and know they're accountable to him first and that they would handle things in a proper way. Again, just see how God wants things done equitably. Whether it's the business transaction of selling the land in reference to the year of Jubilee, God wants us to deal equitably. Nothing wrong, listen, nothing wrong in and itself with business dealings and selling properties, but God expects justice and equity and that we would do things righteously and ethically that, that matters to God because people matter to him and we should treat them likewise and, and because we represent him certainly as the children of God. Verse 39, And if any one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you. So this is another thing that could happen. Let's say you fall into misfortune uh, and you have no other option uh, to create means and provision for yourself. Your land, your crops have failed for many years over. Sometimes your only recourse was to sell yourself like a hired servant to someone else in order to make provision for yourself. So at least you did have uh, you know, three meals a day or a roof over your head, some shelter or a way to be able to provide adequately for your family if they were going to starve and not be able to get by because of a situation. This was common in that day. And really it was, it was a form of employment in many ways. It was a way whereby they would gain employment. So if your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor, sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. Again, don't get the idea in your mind here of slavery the way we think of slavery. Certain slavery existed in the ancient cultures. And again, remember, the Bible never endorses slavery. The Bible doesn't command slavery. If anything, God gives instruction in his word to just regulate a practice that already existed. But we also need to remember, as God gives these instructions, don't have in your mind the same concept of what you think of when you picture someone as a, a master and a slave. And a lot of this is more a reference here to the way that they would treat people who they would hire on as help and workers, and hear God telling them that they were to treat them equitably and fairly, that they weren't to rule over them with rigor, we'll see, but that they were to treat them 
in a way that was fair and in many ways like family because they realized that they were just giving them an opportunity to provide for themselves for means of survival. So God says if a person needs to do that, then don't compel them to serve as like a slave, he says, but as a, notice, a hired servant. In other words, like an employee, you've given them a job and a sojourner he shall be with you and serve until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family, and he shall return to his possession of his fathers. Again, God says, verse 42, notice, people don't belong to you. It's a good reminder sometimes if someone's serving under our supervision or authority in some way, God says, for they are my servants. You know, it's a good thing to remember, whether it's in the business world or someone we have do work for us, you know, that we would never think somehow that, that we ultimately are the one in charge of someone or, you know, even among the body of Christ, that we would never begin to think, hey, well, I can dictate to people and tell them what to do or take advantage of them or use them uh, and in a sense try and get slave labor out of them. God says, no, people are my servants. They're my servants. There may be a stewardship where God allows his servant to help us to participate in what we're doing and allow us to provide even maybe leadership over the realm of what they do. But God here strongly, listen, treat them right for they are my servants, he says, verse 42, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt and they shall not be sold as slaves. And notice verse 43, you shall not rule over him with rigor but you shall fear your God. And I think that's the key. If a person has a healthy fear of God, then they'll treat people right. Now, you show me someone who is not treating someone correctly, and I assure you that one of the primary purposes is that person has no fear of God because they think that they're entitled to or have the right to mistreat someone harshly or cruelly and the buck stops with them and they don't have to answer to anyone for that. So again, whether it's a husband who's treating a wife harshly and incorrectly and, and leading in a way that is inappropriately, you know, which First Peter warns about not to be harsh with our wives, you show me that. I show you a husband who has no fear of God because he's failed to realize, look, this just isn't my wife. First and foremost, this is God's daughter. And listen, I tell, if you treat one of my daughters inappropriately, you're going to incur some wrath. There's going to be a problem with the father. And see, for us to remember that as husbands, look, yeah, well, she's my wife. Well, right, but before she was your wife, she was God's daughter. And that's never changing. And that's why I think God gives to us instruction as husbands that yes, we have a role of leadership, but we also need to realize we need to lead them in a way that is acceptable to their father and to realize that we're, we're, we're dealing with God's daughter or whether it's leading in some other capacity, those maybe who serve uh, with us in, in ministry or again, vocationally in any capacity, that we would realize that our treatment of people should be directly connected to our, our fear of God and realizing we ultimately answer to a higher authority. We ultimately answer to God in relation to how we interact with and treat people in our lives. And again, if we are mistreating people, the issue is a lack of fear of God in a person's heart. And to the extent that that's there and a person has a proper relationship with the Lord, then and only then can you properly treat other people because you realize I'm accountable to God. 
And, and these people matter to God and, and God loves them and therefore they're made in the image of God. I should treat them properly and treat them correctly with adequate care and appreciation and so on and so forth. So here God gives a strong injunction to remember these are my servants, God says. They belong to me, the idea is you shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. So again, whether we're ruling over our children, ruling over anyone, these are important spiritual concepts to remember. Verse 44, and as for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations, so this pertains now to Gentiles or foreigners, from them, God says, you may buy male or female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you shall take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. The idea is that they would not receive the freedom as a Jew from the congregation of Israel would every seventh year or at the Jubilee. They shall be your permanent slaves. Again, the idea is that this provision did not apply to those who were foreigners, but regarding your brethren, God emphasizes your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. So take notice here. You do see this provision or exception. Those outside the family of Israel did not have the same freedoms and the same rights and privileges as those who were a part of the family of Israel. Notice those who weren't a part of the brethren of Israel, the family of Israel, they had less freedom in their lives as it pertained to these things civilly among the culture. And I think, again, that's a very interesting picture because truth be told, those who were outside of the family those who are outside of the family of God, they live with a lot less freedom. They're in bondage to a lot more things. They don't have certain rights and privileges and the freedom and the liberty that the people and the family of God experience as a whole. And here, interesting that God makes this distinction between foreigners and those who are actually brethren and the family of the children of Israel in this area. Verse 47, he says, Now if a sojourner or stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren of the children of Israel who dwells by him becomes poor, and he has to sell himself again, to a member of that stranger's family. So this is an Israelite selling himself to a Gentile person, to a foreigner. God says, verse 48, after he has sold himself, notice, again, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or if anyone who is near of kin to him and his family may redeem him or if he's able somehow, he may redeem Himself, And thus he shall reckon with him who bought him. The price of his, notice, release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him. And if there are still many years, again, the same concept of how to equate value here with the land, it was the same with purchasing or redeeming back a slave to get them out from under that obligation of, of, of enslavement to a master because they became poor. If there are still many years, verse 51, according to them, he shall repay the price of his redemption from the money with which he was bought. And if there remain but a few years until the coming year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him and according to his years, 
he shall pay him the price of his redemption. And he shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and he shall not rule with rigor over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then God says still there was a provision. He can be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel, again, God emphasizes, are servants to me. God says ultimately they're my servants, first and foremost. And they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. So here in verse 47 through the remainder of the chapter, God brings up the opportunity to redeem a person out of personal slavery. Earlier in the chapter, God made a uh, provision there where a kinsman, same idea here, you see in these verses, a close blood relative, he describes here, someone who is close to you, verse 47, a member of your family, uh, again, they could redeem someone back, whether it was an uncle or anyone who was near of kin, it had to be someone who was a blood relative, a close relative, number one. Number two, they had to pay a purchase price, and the price was valued depending upon the relation to the year of Jubilee. But those two things were necessary. Well, actually, three things were necessary. They had to be free from slavery themselves. They could not be, in a sense, in bondage the same way you were or they couldn't purchase you out of your slavery. Number two, they had to be a near relative to you. And number three, they had to have the purchase price that was necessary. We see multiple times here a description of repaying the price of one's redemption. And of course, as we look at this, and this was a way that someone could get you out from under slavery if you had to sell yourself as a slave to a master to someone else to pay off your debt, this becomes a beautiful picture, as I said earlier, of exactly what Jesus has done for us. Jesus became our kinsman redeemer. And really, he met those same three qualifications I just met, did he not? Number one, Jesus came as a man. Jesus came being fully God and fully man. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man. First Timothy 2 says, it says the man, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a redemption for all of us. So Jesus became that kinsman redeemer for each one of us by fulfilling that very thing on our behalf. Listen to how Paul describes that. He says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and he emphasizes the man Christ Jesus, his humanity. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom, that's a redemption price, a ransom to be testified in due time. So Jesus came as a kinsman redeemer, a close human blood relative. Number two, Jesus did not have the same problem that we did. Jesus had no sin. He was not under the curse of sin. He was not in a position where he was unable to redeem someone else because he was virgin born and he was sinless in his humanity, which made him not in the same condition that we were in under the bondage of sin. And Jesus paid the redemption price, the perfect redemption price. Peter says we weren't redeemed with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. And Jesus paid that redemption price, why? So that we could be set free. So that we could be released 
from the punishment of sin so that we could be released from being in a condition of slavery so that we don't have to be obligated to live in a perpetual place of being a slave to sin. Instead, we've been freed from those very things. Let me just read to you before we share communion together what Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this, Or do you not know that your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. He says, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You know, as we celebrate communion, certainly this is what Jesus wanted us to do, to stop, to slow down, to pause and to appreciate. Listen, if you came into a place where you had to sell yourself into slavery just to to be able to get by, and you had to live, in a sense, in that enslaved condition for a period of time, how wonderful would it be to see someone who didn't have to, they didn't have to, but they loved you enough that they were willing to come alongside and, and recognizing your condition, want to see you liberated, want to see you set free. And they were willing of their own cost and expense to pay a price for you, for your soul, for your situation, to liberate you so you could go free. And that they would freely do that sacrificially out of love for you. I tell you, if someone did that, there would be a tremendous amount, not only of, of, of celebrating, wow, my freedom, my freedom, but there would also be a tremendous amount of appreciation. Would you agree? Wow, you would do that for me? You would pay that price for me? That, that was a pretty hefty price that you paid for me. And see, Jesus said that when we eat this bread and we uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Remembering what? His redemption, remembering that as our kinsman redeemer, he came, he entered into our world, our enslaved situation, and he paid the purchase price, the shedding of his own blood, so that we could be liberated from the bondage of sin.